you've kind of got a system where based on the way that you're employed, the kind of publication you work for, and whether you're a freelancer or an employee, that there's three different um, frameworks around it, which obviously lends itself to being used, and I'll even say exploited by publications and by managers and by bosses to use whichever framework suits their commercial interests the, the best. And I think that's partly why we've ended up in this situation. Welcome. I'm Izzy Roberts-Orr, Artistic Director of the Emerging Writers Festival, and you're listening to the Digital Writers Festival podcast. The Digital Writers Festival 2018 is an online festival exploring the unique relationship between technology and storytelling, accessible anywhere, anytime, by anyone with an internet connection. Join us right here in hyperspace between the 30th of October and the 3rd of November and find our full program at digitalwritersfestival.com. Come in, get comfortable, and get curious as we hear from storytellers and artists from across the World Wide Web. Before we begin this session of the Digital Writers Festival, it's important to acknowledge the First Nations of Australia, the traditional owners of the land which I'm sitting on right now, in my case, in, I'm in Melbourne. The traditional owners are the Wurundjeri and the Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and future. Welcome to the Digital Writers Festival in 2018. My name is Ben Eltham. I'm going to be chairing a conversation uh, on this panel where I'm going to be talking about some of the challenges and the opportunities for digital writers and particularly their rights in the digital workplace. This session is called Hyperspace Hustle. We understand that the workforce is becoming increasingly digitized. What does this mean for writers and storytellers working online? And how do we ensure our rights as part of a digital workforce? In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Osman Faruqi and Marissa Wikrana-Manaika about the state of digital unionizing in Australia how we can draw on digital writers' unions, organising examples from the United States, and how we can imagine the future of online writing as workers. I'm joined, firstly, by Marissa Wickramanaika. Marissa is a writer, she's an editor, and a very experienced journalist. She's been working freelancer for many years. She works with words, and she works with people on a range of different media to get stories out, She's written books and she does speaking gigs and workshops as well. Perhaps we can start by you telling us a little bit about your working experience and what it's like for someone who's a freelancer for a living. Um, it's very chaotic as a freelancer because you're always having to think several steps ahead and it's, it's very precarious and it's been like nonstop precarity in that regard for so many years now it tends to take a toll on you and you tend to get tired but it's also exciting because there's a variety of things that I do and um, it changes day to day and even if you didn't have all the other things that I do do in my business even if you were just a journalist you would probably be working on several different stories you know every every single day just to 
keep your head above water. So in that way, um, there's always something new and something different and exciting. But um, well, perhaps we can unpack that a little bit, Marissa. Um, do you want to maybe take us through a day in the working life of Marissa? What, what sort of things are you doing? Are you pitching? Are you writing? Are you researching? Are you editing? How does that roll out? So I usually wake up and I have to listen to the news and sometimes that's a fun thing to do and sometimes very often that's not a fun thing to do. So I'm, I'm usually I try to be up early in the morning and I try to listen to the news on uh, on my phone, uh, sort of like a podcast situation. And um, I listen to about an hour of news while I'm doing other things. I have to sit around other things in my day. So breakfast, just getting ready for the day. Um, and once I have that, then I can sit down and I can start pitching. So sometimes if I don't already have something to write, I or edit or any sort of other work to do straight away. I usually am pitching stories. So I try to pitch a couple of stories uh, each day. I try to find, because I also am an editor, I try to find a thesis or a manuscript to edit each day and uh, try to send those things out there. And if you do that first in the morning, then it can go up and do its thing and people can take their time, like considering whether they want to hire you or not. And then you've got the rest of the day to work on it. So I try to budget like a certain amount of time in the morning to quickly do that. And then you spend the rest of your time doing your writing or your editing. So sometimes that involves calling people up, interviewing them, um, and, you know, when you do that, you have appointments to interview people or appointments to go and meet people. And so you work around those. So, like, if I've got an appointment but I've got editing work to do, I'll do that before I meet someone. And that sort of thing, you try to organize it. So each day is different. So you try to organize it around what you've got to do <laughs> that is set in stone for interviewing and so on. And, uh, yeah, usually I am stuck in front of my email. People email People email you at the last minute and everything. Like um, today, a piece is going up on SBS, for example, and I thought it was going to go up on Wednesday. But, you know, on Friday, Thursday, I was sent edits and I was like, yeah, okay, I've got some time. But on Friday, they were like, oh, no, it's going up Monday morning. Can you please hurry? <laughs> yeah, so you had to do that on Friday. Um, yeah, so you get things like that last minute in the emails. And, yeah, it's very... And then sometimes you can get things where I have to take a week off and um, go off to a writing festival. So I just went to Newcastle for the National Young Writers Festival. So, yeah, and the first day I was there, I was doing 1,000 words on engine oil, you know. I have to manage that. So uh, thankfully, I, I went a day early before everything started. But, you know, instead of walking around and seeing Newcastle, I was like in my room, sort of banning away, trying to figure out how to do 1,000 words on engine oil. Because it was, I had a deadline, and yeah, it just it happened, and I had to take the work. So yeah. What What's that process like when you pitch to a publication? How do you go about pitching, and what's that conversation like with the relevant editor or publisher? Um, it can be. I mean, I I try to make it as nice a conversation as possible. Obviously, you don't want to turn anybody offside. Um, so I. I I'm a member of various groups and quite often there'll be a pitch call out. I'm a member of, uh, I've signed up to various mailing lists that send out opportunities. And so I just have to, I mean, it takes some time. And this is another thing that I'm always thinking about at the back of my mind. Um, but sometimes there's a call out and I'm racking my brain kind of going, oh, what can I pitch that fits what they're looking for at this moment in time? And other times I have an idea 
and I'm trying to figure out who I can send it to. So that's when I have to talk to fellow journals and say, oh, who can who can take this idea on? Who can do this? Um, and so it's really difficult. Uh, people have said before, and I totally agree with them, that pitching takes a lot of time because you just the actual email where you write the pitch and send it off is fine. That doesn't take too long. But the sitting down and thinking about whether you've got something that can be sent off. And then sometimes a lot of people I know do stuff on spec. And what that means is like they'll write the whole thing out and they'll take note of the publication style, write the whole thing out, send it in and hope that they get a yes and then change it and try to send it around elsewhere if they don't. Um, but I try not to do that as much as possible. I try to pitch first and I try to have a good idea. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't work out. Um, I've pitched several times to Audrey Daybook, for example, and Audrey Daybook um, didn't like any of my ideas, but I was the first person they thought of to uh, ask when they wanted to commission a piece. And so I was able to write that piece for them. And so sometimes it works out well because they just know your name. So when should you mention money? When, when, when should that difficult conversation about the dollars and cents happen? Uh, from the start, so with a lot of the pitch call-outs, they, we ask them to, if they're posted in the groups and everything, to post a rate. Um, and I usually, if they're commissioning me and they've asked me, it's either in their email to me or I will ask in the reply to them. I was like, by the way, you know, can you... And I just say it like, hey, let me know, deadline, pay rate... Etc. Any anything else? Work out all of that. That sort of nitty gritty. Just give me a brief, you know, if you ha- if they haven't mentioned it in the first email. So like, happy to take on commission, deadline, word count, pay rate. Yeah. And do you have a pay rate that you will you won't work for unless you meet that rate? So is there is there a sort of level of money that it's not worth getting out of bed for? <laughs> and, well, sometimes I work from bed. <laughs> Because I could, I could just, you know, if I don't want to. <laughs> don't tell anyone. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like the electric blanket is on and it's the middle of winter. I don't want to get out. <laughs> so I have the laptop on and I do stuff. But, um, yeah, I I usually say to a lot of uh, freelancers starting out, like, try to get between 50 cents to a dollar per word um, as, a, as a reasonable figure. But there are places that... Um, for various reasons, um, some of them good, some of them bad, um, can only offer you a certain amount per piece, per article, and then you kind of have to wait up and, and decide if it's worth doing. For Overland, for example, there's 200 bucks per piece, and that is all that they can reasonably afford, and they understand that it is not um, a proper rate, but that is all that they can. So you take it on as a kind of, you have to think of it as a honorarium and that maybe it's part of your rent. And so I try to think of it as, is this going to be enough for me to hit my monthly goal and my own personal financial goals? Like, am I going to be, have I got anything else on that's going to, you know, um, pay the rest of my goal? I can get $200 from a place like Overland, but I can get, you know, so much more from here and I've already done that. So I only need like 200 to, to reach my goal or whatever for this month. And that's the sort of thinking process. So I don't say no to things straight away, but I mean, if somebody's asking you to do something for 10 bucks an article and it's like, what, 800 odd words, you know, yeah, it's not worth it. <laughs> and in your time as a freelancer, has it got more difficult um, 
not just in terms of pitching, but have the rates of pay been declining or have they been growing? I don't think they've been growing. I think the number of places they can offer a reasonably good rate, like say that 200 per piece and above, are definitely decreasing because publications have been closing over the last, God, oh, how many years have I been in this? <laughs> Since 2008 um, that I've kept an eye on this. So we, we've had lots of places that, you know, used to do a dollar per word, uh, shut the bulletin, for example. I never got to write for the bulletin and I'm so sad. Um, yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but those sorts of places uh, shut down. Lots of online publications started and folded and they didn't have the budget and a business model, I suppose, that would help support that sort of rate. So my next question is, um, given the difficulties of being a freelancer, um, why is it that uh, you think that freelancers have such a difficult time and, and, and what what is it about the industry that makes it difficult for freelancers? I think the industry is changing and, look, I'm a freelancer partly because I love it and I'm very happy that I love it, but... I'm very lucky that I love it because the main reason I became a freelancer was that it was really hard for me to get a job. I graduated at the end of 2008 in the middle of the recession. So I think that's partly the reason a lot of people who want to be involved in journalism and publishing and writing are freelancers because they want to be involved in the industry, but um, they don't often get the opportunity to work in-house. There are not enough jobs going around. And every other day we hear of more people getting made redundant, especially in journalism. The in, I mean, the industry changes. Right now there's an inquiry into the ABN system and how that's going to function. And they want to kind of change how people apply for it, how um, whether people have to renew, whether there should be a renewal fee, uh, whether people have to prove that they're not using it for fraudulent purposes and all of this stuff that could heavily impact freelancers who don't have a lot of time and money and, you know, that sort of resource to kind of go through any sort of system that requires them to pay to to um, go through all those checks and things for APNs, like, whereas previously it's been really easy to sign up and get started. And I think that's really important to not have that barrier to freelancers getting started. So there's those kind of um, uh, obstacles. But then there's also this uh, whole thing of um, we are seeing as small business by fair work and so we cannot be collectively bargained on behalf of. And so we can't actually legally have a situation where um, a union, for example, can go up to some uh, to publishers and say every freelancer you hire, whether they're a union member or not, has to uh, be paid a certain rate, a minimum rate, at least for their work. Or this is the word rate that you have to um, adhere by. So we have those issues. We do have conditions under fair work uh, about conditions in the workplace that we cannot be harassed and so on. So that's still there. But issues like pay rates and um, the issue of uh, do people pay for super for freelancers if they hire freelancers, for example, that those sorts of things are really difficult in the industry. The fact that we're all isolated is a huge issue. We're trying to solve that because we now have a lot of online groups springing up where people try to network online 
so that some of the isolations taken off. They organize meetups and things. I ran a group like that of WA uh, union members, MEAA members, um, while I was on the WA MEA media section committee, um, so that we could all meet up, we could all chat, and they really valued that, you know, even though it was mostly done via email, they really valued being part of a group, knowing that there were other freelancers out there, knowing that if they needed a question answered, they could, you know, just quickly fire off an email and somebody would answer it. So just that feeling of connection, because that... That's huge. When you're a freelancer, you can't just turn to your colleague at the next desk and ask a question. And I think people don't realize there's that like sort of psychological aspect to it as well. You really do feel like you're alone when you're uh, handling an issue. And so, you know, it might not even be a journalism issue. It might be a business issue. A lot of the problems sometimes that I personally had to think about have been how uh, things to do with running a business, what do I do next sort of thing, and there's no one to kind of bounce that off. It can be a lonely profession, can't it? And, and so, you know, what what have your sources of support been as a freelancer? I've had to rely on friends, and this is really strange as well because I don't have a lot of – I have a lot of colleagues that I would consider friends now, but uh, really close friends um, – that do the same sort of thing that I do, not really. So it's been, it's really weird. It's really weird to have to turn to your your best friend and try to explain something about the business and journalism to them. You have to give them the backstory before you can tell them what your problem is. Whereas, whereas you could just turn to another journal and you'd be like, oh, this happened, you know, and they'll get it straight away. And yeah, so that's that's frustrating. Um, quite often. I'm lucky that my p- current partner is a journalist, so sometimes he gets it, um, but he works in-house, so sometimes he doesn't. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, it's really hard. And my, my support has been, actually, uh, a lot of my colleagues in the union, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy that I joined the union and that I d- chose to not just be a member, but to be active and become a delegate and sit on committees and things, because those are the people that I actually email now and say, oh, I'm having this issue. And it doesn't have to be like a major issue or anything that the union has uh, officially has to do anything on. It can just be like, help, help, help. just talk to me about this problem, you know, or, or this happened to me today, and as a journal, what do you think? And so that's that's been really useful, and they give me advice. Um, and have you run into some problems in your freelance business? For example, have publishers not paid you, or have you had trouble uh, with articles being spiked? Things like that have they happened to you? I've had a few articles kind of get spiked, yeah, but that's always been. I've been very lucky, and I think it's because because I have been very upfront about. Uh, the way I want to work, what I want to happen, kill fees and things like that. Um, so because I've been upfront about it and I haven't shied away from it, um, I think it's worked out in my favour. So I've never really had any of the sort of late client payment issues. Usually when someone's late, there's a reasonable thing. We can usually sort it out by email. I just send them a nice email. They send me an email back apologising. Someone goes and talks to the people in accounts and they find out that they filed it in the wrong place or something like that or missed a number or, you know, of um, uh, the form or something. 
and it's there's usually a reasonable um, reason why it happened. Then. And um, we're running, we're probably running up against our time limits here. But but just before we finish up, Marissa, I was just wondering if you had any advice for younger writers starting out. I think you have to really know your rights, and you have to understand that it's not just about uh, journalism. You have to know the business side of things as well. So you have to know like uh, things about tax and how you file. You have to know about super. And I would advise you to set up direct debit transfers for things like super and savings and if you think you're going to need to pay tax and have that come out automatically so you kind of set it and forget it. Create financial goals, keep to them. But, yeah, join your union. Your union is awesome. (laughs) And then you get to have me as a delegate to talk to, which is amazing. (laughs) Marisa Wickmarinaka, thanks for talking to the Digital Writers Festival. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Marisa Wickramanayake, a freelance writer, journalist and editor. We were talking about some of the challenges and opportunities of freelancing as a digital writer. I also had the opportunity to talk to Osman Faruqi, a well-known writer, journalist and broadcaster who's worked as the political editor for Junkie and is currently a broadcaster for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. I spoke to Osman while he was in transit on a trip to the United States in a hotel in Los Angeles. Oz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for the introduction, Ben. Really looking forward to chatting through these topics. Absolutely. Now, you're someone who's written online for a number of years now. Uh, You were a former editor at Junkie and uh, you've written for uh, probably most of the major Australian publications online. Uh, Have you always uh, been a a digital writer primarily? Uh, No, actually, it's probably like the third iteration of my career. I had a very failed start early on in my life as as an attempted to become an environmental engineer, found that that wasn't really the right gig for me. Um, worked a few years in federal and state politics for the Greens, uh, doing different kinds of things. And then when I didn't really find the satisfaction I was looking for in that industry, turned my hand to, to writing primarily about politics at first. But now I, I work as a lifestyle editor at the ABC as part of the new uh, lifestyle online website, ABC Life. And before that, as you said, I'd, I'd worked at Junkie and written about pop culture, social affairs, current affairs, news and politics. Now, when you were at Junkie, uh, were you a freelancer or were you paid a, a salary there, like, a, I guess, a, a regular worker? So I've, I've done both. So um, I guess the last couple of years, I was the news and politics editor at Junkie as a full-time staff member. But prior to that, I was a freelancer with them, filing copy on mainly um, news and, and politics stories. And I was also freelancing at that time for The Guardian, for Vice, for The Australian, um, a few other publications like SBS and ABC as well. And I, I think um, it would be fair to say that, like most freelancers, uh, that, that that experience is, is can be quite precarious from time to time. It can be quite insecure. Um, I mean, would it, would it be fair to say that you were waiting on each invoice in order to pay bills and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're, you've been freelancing for a while as well, Ben. You would totally understand what that can be like. I think what's interesting in terms of my career is in the last probably like four or five years, I've gone from freelancing exclusively to working at a digital youth publication, which gave me some better rights and and a guaranteed income. But, you know, it wasn't a unionized workplace now being somewhere like the ABC, which kind of has a situation where it's a media organization that's both 
you know, has, has a union EBA, but it's also a public sector organization. So has the benefits of public sector unionization as well. So I've kind of gone through all those different phases of, of media experiences, and I can see the clear benefits of organizing as a result of them. Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that uh, for those of us who are relying exclusively on freelance writing for our income, times can be pretty difficult. Um, I know that when I was paying the rent exclusively as a freelancer, you know, that that was pretty tough um, because uh, unlike, for example, a a salaried job, uh, you know, the money wouldn't necessarily arrive every two weeks. Uh, It would definitely be a case of having to hound publications to pay those invoices uh, to follow up, and, and sometimes people wouldn't pay you for months and months and months. And I think I think some publications, unfortunately, rely on the fact that a lot of freelancers who are busy, stressed out, don't have the time or energy or the people to advocate on behalf of them to get that money might end up giving up. And that's something that I've done myself. Like I kind of regret it, but you know, I just decided that I wasn't worth my time and energy at points in the past to keep hounding these people to pay invoices. And I have no doubt that um, that that's a deliberate strategy to just, you know, try and make the bucks where you can. And it's disappointing because having been both a freelancer, a junkie, and then being an editor commissioning freelancers, I, I, you know, I do understand, I sympathize with editors who are managing, you know, a lot of freelancers in their own full-time jobs and it can be stressful, but there's no excuse in not paying someone once you've commissioned them. Like that's part of your job. Um, And I get that, you know, editors are busy and everyone's under more stress than they've ever been before. But if you're getting labor from someone and if you're working for a commercial media publication that is then profiting off that labor, there's zero excuse not paying those invoices on time. I mean, we talk about not paying invoices on time, but it's a fact that for some publications, they're still not paying people at all, are they? No, that's absolutely the case. And I'm actually interested in in your perspective on this, Ben, because I've been thinking about it for a while. I haven't really talked to that many different freelancers about it. I think the term freelancer in in the media industry is in some ways maybe become a bit of a misnomer. Like there was certainly, it seems like an era before I was a writer where you'd have a culture of freelancers you know, where people would choose rather than becoming a salaried full-time journalist, I'm going to freelance for magazines, I'm going to be an international affairs reporter, whatever, and, and that suited your lifestyle. Whereas now freelancer to me is kind of shorthand in the media industry for basically a gig worker, right? Or like a, a, a hyper-casualized worker where they would love to work full-time, but publications rather than paying and bringing on more full-time salaried staff, they just rely on an army of freelancers who they either don't pay or pay really, really small sums of money in terms of when you compare what they'd be getting if they're a full-time staff member. Yes. Well, I think that's absolutely correct. I remember when I started out, um, and I'm showing my age a little bit here, but when I started out in the early 2000s as a, as a freelance writer, uh, the rates were pretty good. You know, if I was writing for Fairfax or the News Corporation, um, rates were often between 50 cents and a dollar a word. So if you filed a couple of articles a week, you could absolutely pay the rent off that. And freelancers were paid pretty well because they were they tended to be the cream of the crop. They're the people who could actually make it as freelancers, whereas the, uh, the big publications were um, largely salaried workforces. And, of course, they relied on those salaried workers to churn out copy um, as part of their nine to five day jobs. And so I think what's changed really completely in the time that I've been around is that we've moved from large workforces, large newsrooms of salaried journalists to 
to really, um, yeah, as you say, a hyper-casualized gig economy where really the bulk of the workforce is now riding um, from piece to piece. And it is a piece rate. That's the other interesting thing. So, um, you know, I think that's that's been a, a very big change. And the other big change has been the fall in the rates. So, you know, when I started out, uh, as I was saying, you know, a, a typical piece, if you, if you filed a feature piece for a major newspaper, you might make a couple of thousand dollars off that. Uh, and now, of course, that kind of money is unheard of in the industry now. We've got a situation where uh, the average journalist filing for an online publication might be getting paid $200 for that piece, even if it is a 1,000 words and even if a lot of research and interviews and research has gone into that. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, like what we're talking about in terms of the hyper-casualization of, of the workforce and the flatlining or even declining of wages, it's obviously not unique to journalism or media, but th- this industry, you know, as people have been talking about for years, has been particularly smashed apart for various reasons over the past decade or so. So, you know, it's facing financial pressures while the number of people seeking entry into this sector hasn't really changed. So it seems like we've got, you know, a situation where, the whole economy is casualizing and the media sector in particular is doing that at a faster rate because there are fewer jobs and opportunities before, but more people are attempting to crack in than ever before. So it seems on one hand, like it's just a, there's partly a labor supply issue that seems to be underpinning a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. Do you think that's fair? Oh, definitely. We've seen an expansion in journalism schools at universities around the nation. Um, and, and, you know, just individual people just seem as interested in ever, as ever in, um, in working in the media and as working as journalists. And, you know, I think that's great. I think it's important that people want to tell stories. They want to research our democracy. That's important for the health of our society. But, of course, the problem is that in a capitalist society where people are largely paid by private sector organisations, that mismatch in supply and demand of creative labour has led to a huge oversupply of creative labour, particularly at the bottom end, you know, people starting out and trying to get a foothold in the industry. And, and the problem there, of course, is that people are all too willing to work for free. That, no, that's exactly right. And, like, at the end of the day, and I'm sure we'll probably expand on this in a, in, in a bit in terms of, like, how to maybe push back against some of these issues that we've been discussing. But, like, yeah, as long as people are willing to work for free and what they're producing is making money for the companies that are commissioning them, why would anything change, right? Like what's going to compel a commercial publisher to start paying someone if they can get copy for free and make money off that? That's just not, that's not in their interests to do it. So unless, you know, workers decide collectively, the meat industry decides collectively to take a more serious and organized approach to not just people working for free, but people working for low rates, then I just don't understand why we expect commercial publishers to magically double or triple or quadruple their rates. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think this also gets to an issue of regulations and, and the legal framework. Um, I think it's worth pointing out at this point that in Australia, freelance journalists are not considered workers uh, according to the the Fair Work Act, the, the dominant federal industrial relations legislation. So because of that, uh, they're not considered to be uh, covered by things like the minimum wage, for example, when they work. Um, and as a result of that, uh, as has been pointed out by a number of people, including by the Media Arts and Entertainment Alliance, there are no established freelance minimum rates. 
so there's, there's actually no award or no industrial regulation around the minimum amount of money that you can pay someone for writing online in Australia. Yeah, and the whole industry is like a patchwork of different regulations. Like even when you look past freelancers to staff that work for digital publications, for example, or even work for the digital sections of established print organizations, the Print Journalists Award, which is effectively the Journalists Award, doesn't apply. All the all the clauses within it don't apply to those stuff. So while certain things like a minimum wage and pay bans apply, other provisions around leave do not. So you've kind of got a system where based on the way that you're employed, the kind of publication you work for, and whether you're a freelancer or an employee, that there's three different um, frameworks around it, which obviously lends itself to being used, and I'll even say exploited by publications and by managers and by bosses to use whichever framework suits their commercial interests the, the best. And I think that's partly why we've ended up in this situation. Yeah, there's no doubt that digital writing is undervalued compared to print writing. And partly this is a legacy issue. In the old days, of course, when uh, print advertising was very lucrative for many publications, there was some commercial rationale there, which is that, you know, if you're writing for the glossy magazine that could pull in very, very lucrative ad rates for display advertising in that magazine, then your writing was in that respect more valuable than digital writing where, uh, you know, advertising was pulling in cents on the dollar really of what print was. But as the entire media has moved online, I think there's less and less justification for that argument. I think that's right. I think a lot of people are willing to accept or at least by this argument that, oh, the print media industry has been slammed, so we've all got to accept lower pay for a little while. But we're beyond that now. Like, you know, Fairfax has faced its own particular, particularly unique series of, of crises over the past few years and culminating now with the Nine takeover. But, you know, Channel Nine is an, ex- is an organization. Channel 10 is an organization um, where they have made well, maybe Channel 10 is a bad example. Channel, let's take Channel 9, which has a number of print uh, online digital outlets. Channel 9's posted profit after profit year after year. What's their excuse for paying um, you know, low, if at all, freelance rates? Look at News Corp. Look at um, places like BuzzFeed, Vice, and Junkie, who are all newer digital outlets that make money um, and, in Junkie's case, have been bought out by huge ASX-listed Pub, uh, like media companies that post profit in the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, organizations like BuzzFeed and Vice are still trying to find their profit model, but their valuation is in the the tens of billions. What's the, you know they're, they're not companies that can say, oh, print media has been smashed. We're not really sure how to deal with this. They exist in the digital framework. They they don't have an excuse to to pay low rates. That for them, it's just the way that they do their economics. We can make X amount of dollars by only paying you know, Y amount of dollars in wages. And I think the approach there is not to accept that the media industry has been disrupted. It's to organize and say, you guys are making a hell of a lot of money out of us and it's time you gave a bit of it back. Yeah, okay, well, let's talk about that. Uh, in the United States, there's been a, a very interesting phenomenon happening over the last couple of years, which is there's been a wave of unionization in the digital newsrooms. So we've had a number of high-profile American publications move to unionize in recent years. Um, are, are you across any of that, Boz? Yeah, it's been really interesting, like places like Vox, um, who, who I think are the, one of the most prominent examples of, of unionization, places like Gawker as well unionized, but I guess that's a bit more complicated because they kind of fell apart a few years after that. Um, but it's been a really interesting trend to observe because, you know, in terms of like, I'm not a super close 
uh, you know, observer industrial relations law internationally, but the general perception would be that U.S. labor rights and labor organizing is much weaker than it is even in Australia, which is in a bit of a slump. But for whatever reason, the U.S. seems to have in the media sector, particularly in the digital media sector, the, the Writers Guild of America has figured out a, a, an organizing model there that works for them. And again, I'm not an expert, but I think part of it has to do with the frameworks within you can organize in the US versus what you can organize in Australia. And my understanding is that in America, if a, a majority, so 50% plus one of employees sign up to join the union, then the employer has to recognize that union's authority in negotiating. So the, it's a very clear message to send you know it's like if 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 half of you sign up to the union then the employer is going to have to negotiate collectively and there's such an obvious and long example even in america of collective organizing delivering better paying conditions for staff and employees than individual organizing in australia you know we can encourage as many employees as as we want to sign up to the union but there's still a complicated arrangement of getting employers to negotiate an enterprise bargaining agreement, getting that enterprise bargaining agreement lodged and recognized by Fair Work Australia, you already start to lose, you know, it's, you can see how it's a comp- more complicated message to sell to your colleagues and, and to, to workers in, in, in the industry. And I'm sure that's not all of it. I've probably oversimplified it, but I think that difference in how you can benefit from unionization in America versus Australia so directly is perhaps part of why we've seen it increase in the States. But we haven't really seen that kind of organizing in Australia outside of, I think, the Guardian Australia and, and Crikey, who've, I guess, unionized in, in the last couple of years. But the vast majority of digital outlets in Australia, most employees are on individual contracts, is my understanding. Yes, that's also my understanding. Although I believe we've had a, a, recent, uh, a recent development, which is that the conversation newsroom has unionized. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really interesting development because that's been a growing publication and uh, that's one where, uh, as far as I understand it, it unionised really in response to uh, employee employee disaffection with the management. The the employees were disappointed with the, the pay offer they'd been given and with the uh, the enterprise agreement that they were offered, and and they decided to to join the union basically in response so that they could have a better negotiation with their bosses. No, that's a, it's really interesting and it's a good trend. And I think, I think the um, places like The Conversation and The Guardian, perhaps what helps there is having staff who've worked in places like Fairfax or at News or at the ABC where the benefits of unionization have been clearer for a long time and helping their you know, younger colleagues understand that. I think my experience in the, in the youth media sector, one of the challenges is that this, the, the age of as staff on average is is quite low and you've got people often it's their first job out of university and so trying to get them to understand the union framework even though everyone's concerns are the same like at lunch at you know friday beers employees across the digital youth sector are talking about the same things like where's our overtime where's our long service leave why do we only get four weeks when our colleagues in the print industry get six weeks leave maternity leave all the same sort of issues that that workers talk about Without that experience of what a unionized workforce can bring, it doesn't automatically occur to young workers that joining the union and collectively organizing is an option available to them. And hopefully through things like the conversation we've just described and, and you know what we saw at Crikey, or private media, I think, which is the owner of Crikey and The Guardian, that, that message might start to seep through to the rest of the sector. That's something that I'm optimistic about. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think as people realise the benefits, then they are more likely, I, I think, to act. Um, of course, there are problems there, again, with the 
the regulatory framework. Um, one of the big problems is that unions can't collectively bargain for freelancers. So the unions are actually not allowed under the law to, to try and strike deals for freelancers. So if you're not a salaried employee in a newsroom, um, then it, it's a lot more difficult really for the union to campaign on your behalf. That's really interesting. I wasn't actually aware of that. And I guess that, yeah, as you identify, that's an extra challenge. And it seems like, you know, a, a union can offer an enormous amount of support when it comes to organizing in terms of knowledge, resources, connections, networking, all that sort of stuff. And it seems like in relation to freelancers, there needs to be an attempt to organize outside of that framework. But at the same time, I think one of the challenges that we need to overcome in the industry is is this idea that there's a battle between freelancers and salaried staff. And I think in my experiences, it's sometimes been reduced to that kind of lazy dichotomy that salaried staff feel threatened by freelancers in this industry because they're willing to work for less and they're taking jobs and, and um, there's a bit of uh, sometimes professional jealousy from freelancers towards their salaried colleagues because they want to get in some of them, but they haven't been able to. But I think from my perspective, both groups are being let down and exploited by commercial media publishers and they're being played off against each other quite deliberately. And it's in the interest of salaried employees to get the best conditions for their freelance colleagues as possible. Because if freelance conditions and wages are depressed, then it's obviously an incentive for commercial media companies to rely more and more on freelancers. Does that make sense? Oh, I couldn't agree more there. Um, If freelance rates were to increase again, then there'd be a clear incentive for employers to start offering salary positions because ultimately it's cheaper to employ someone, you know, as a, a salaried employee if they're churning out good content than it is to pay them high freelance rates per piece. The problem at the moment is that the freelance piece rates are so low that they're effectively undercutting their colleagues in the industry. Exactly. And I think it seems like I think you've put it much more articulately than I did. And I think it seems so clear to me that freelancers and salaried um, media professionals, it's in their interests to work together to drive up the rates and conditions in both sectors. So if there are those freelancers who are, who want those salaried positions, great. And if the freelancers want to maintain their flexible lifestyle, that's great too. They, they benefit from higher rates and salaried media staff benefit by not having their jobs effectively outsourced to casualize to cheaper freelance staff willing to write a piece for $200 because that's the best thing um, on offer. Yeah, well, maybe this is the time for me to, to issue my call for this campaign. There's something close to my heart I've been trying to organise and encourage people to, to campaign on for some time, which is that we need a campaign in Australia about minimum freelance rates. We need to actually, uh, as an industry and as a workforce, talk about what the minimum rate for someone writing an article for a publication for profit should be. And whether that's $200 or whatever the rate should be, I think there should be a minimum rate and that we should campaign for that in order to put a floor uh, under these paying conditions. I think that's a great idea, Ben. And I think not only does it put a floor under it, it sets a, a signal, it sends a signal to the community about the value that we think the, the work generated by writers and journalists has in society. And it also sends a signal to, you know, future media entrepreneurs that this is what the cost is this is the investment if you're seeking to to grow a business in this industry that's what you're going to have to invest to get there and if you can't pay that then sorry try something else you know buy bitcoin or whatever um, but you can't start a media business and hope to pay people 15 dollars 
you know, for 200 word reviews of gigs and hope to profit off that, there's a standard. Um, I think it's a, it's a no brainer. It's never easy organizing creative people. They're, they're often, you know, people with diverse viewpoints politically and socially and in a whole bunch of other dimensions. Um, it's not going to be easy to do this kind of thing, is it, Oz? How, how, can, we, how can we actually connect with our, our fellow digital writers? Yeah, yeah, so right. It's not not only is it not easy in in any sense to organise. I think the media industry is a particularly insular one where people are very tribal and they align very closely with the brand or the masthead or the organisation that they work for. Um, I think I think what's changing a bit is that you know movement between organisations or between freelancing to full time and back again is so much more common now that it seems quite obvious to me that we all benefit by lifting each other up rather than taking pot shots at each other and you know one thing that the um MEAA has been organizing for the past few months or i think for the past few years really are um social events geared around these kinds of discussions and i've been involved in helping organize some of them in sydney and, th- and they do two things they firstly help journalists meet each other um journalists that might have admired each other's work and might have you know traded barbs on twitter or, or you know or, or traded um friendly camaraderie kind of comments but 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 had never have never met before. It helps break down some of those silos and barriers. But it also creates a space where we can talk about our experiences as journalists. And what you find out is that whether you work at Junkie or BuzzFeed or The Australian or Fairfax or the ABC, or whether you're a freelancer, we're all dealing with very similar issues. And it makes a lot of sense for us to work collectively to do that. And like I don't think having piss-ups and bars is going to fix this stuff at all, but I think it can be a starting point. And 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 this sounds like a cliche, but in my experience in in kind of organizing union stuff, and it's not super involved, it's mainly been at a junkie, is just talking to colleagues about what the union is and what collective organizing is and what you can gain from that. It seems so simple, but it is the starting point for this sort of change. And I think the more of us who have the experience and the the insights in, and we understand what can be gained, the more that we share that with our colleagues and help them understand the benefits so that they can become ambassadors or get their hands a bit dirty. That's ultimately all that's probably going to um, be needed to get this kind of change. Yeah, I hope so. And I mean, even just knowing your rights, I, I think a lot of people don't realize exactly what they're entitled to. I know a lot of freelancers don't realize that many of them are entitled to superannuation, for example. If you're paid more than $450 a month, even as a contractor, you're entitled to superannuation in Australia. And superannuation, of course, for freelancers is a massive issue because many of them don't get paid superannuation and many of them therefore have really far lower superannuation balances than their colleagues in salaried employment. And unfortunately, you know, often media publishers don't want to point that fact out that, you know, if they're earning more than $450 a month, they're on superannuation. They put the onus back on the freelancer to have to chase that up. Oh, it's a massive issue. I had a fight with Crikey about it several years ago. You know, I had to actually um, really basically insist um, that this was the law, that they had to actually pay me superannuation because I was writing a regular column and it was being paid more than $450 a month. Uh, They just thought that they didn't have to pay me. So, you know, these are the sort of things that a union can help with, I think. The Emerging Writers Festival brings you the Digital Writers Festival again in 2018. 
and you can find the full program live online now. Check it out at digitalwritersfestival.com and join us to listen, learn and play right here in hyperspace from the 30th of October until the 3rd of November. Our theme music is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP Songs in Your Name. Find them on Facebook as Huntley Music. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to the Elders of the lands this podcast reaches. (laughs) 